Well, to catch everybody up to speed, if you haven't been here, um, we're working on, we're working through the 10 big categories of what the Bible teaches. We call it systematic theology. So it's taking the truths that the Bible teaches in various places and trying to organize them according to topic. So we've worked through bibliology, the study of the Bible. We've worked through theology, which is the study of God, specifically God the Father. Then we talked through Christology, the study of Christ, who he is and what he's done. We talked through pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit. And then angelology, the study of the angels, um, which included a study of Satan and the demons. Then we talked about anthropology, which is the study of man, how we're made, um, what we're like. And then that led us into what's called hamartiology, the study of sin, which leads us into soteriology, which is the study of salvation, taking us from our greatest need, forgiveness of our sins, to our greatest hope, the salvation that Christ has purchased. So that's where we're at. We're working on this study of salvation. Um, And we talked, we did an introduction, kind of getting our bearings in the topic And then we're just organizing our study according to chronology as best as we can. So we're still under at this, uh, or sorry, prior to the salvific moment. So we're talking through things like forbearance, meaning that God is patient with us. He did not immediately destroy us when we initially sinned. Um, We talked through foreknowledge, how God has foreknown those who are saved. Then we talked about election. So like the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Peter's writing to the elect according to the foreknowledge of God. So these terms are interrelated. Then we talked about predestination, um, which led us into the call. So that's where we're at now. So let's open our Bibles. We'll start in Romans 8. Romans 8, we'll pick it up down toward verse 28. <clears throat> Who would want to read for us Romans 8, 28 through verse, uh, verse 32? Thanks, brother. Thanks, my friend. Good old Paul with all these pronouns and makes it hard to read. (laughs) So we're talking about 
you probably noticed it there, the word called in verse 28. Um, Paul says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So then, at least the way I think through it, Paul kind of takes a little rabbit trail. He's like, oh, you want to know who the called are? Well, let me tell you. So he says, the ones whom God um, foreknew, verse 29, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. So there's this aspect where God foreknew some individuals. Then, because he foreknew them, he predestined them. Um, That means to mark out beforehand. So he set their destiny ahead of time if you will, but the ones whom he predestined to be conformed to Christ's image, he also called. And those that he called, he justified, meaning he declared them righteous. That's what salvation is. Our sins are forgiven and Christ's righteousness is given to us. And those whom he justified, he also glorified, speaking to how God brings to completion the salvation of all those whom are his, who are his. Um, what the picture we get is how God is working all things together for good. That's the main point of this passage. And it's part of how his spirit works to use those things, even bad things, for the good purpose of conforming his children to the image of Christ. But he does that by foreknowing them, then predestining them, then calling them, then justifying and then glorifying. It's a whole process. Um. And so what we're, our goal is to consider this call, the gospel call, what it is. So I gave you a lot more notes than we will cover. And um, last week we got down, I don't have a physical copy. I don't know what page it was, probably page three. Um, down under instances of the salvific calling. We got partway through that list. And <clears throat> the the big goal that we're looking at is how is this word call used? So it's a Greek word, kaleo, which sounds a whole like, like our English call. So we looked through some word studies of that, um, the verb, the adjective, and the noun. Um, and the primary usage of it is actually very similar to our English word to call or to invite or to summon. It's an invitation. It's to call someone. It's used often of calling someone's name. So like when um, Jesus is going to be born and the angel comes and talks to Mary and Joseph, um, he says, his name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So that's the normal usage of the word, but there's also tons of references that have a spiritual element to it. So we looked through some of those. The Gospels, Jesus used it in one way. For instance, Matthew 9.13, he said, For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus said, I'm going to call them to repentance. So it's an invitation. But not everyone whom Jesus called, in other words, preached the gospel, the kingdom of God to, not everyone accepted it. Does that make sense? But then, so we worked through some of those word studies, and what we get to is these instances of the salvific calling. So there's, there's a difference between what Jesus said of, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's a general invitation. Not everyone responds positively to it. Some reject it. We know that. We can extend the gospel invitation to people in this life. 
and not everyone receives. But in Romans 8, the way Paul uses it is a little different than Jesus, how he used it. Paul is using it as referring only to people who have positively responded to the gospel invitation. So the called are synonymous with Christians, those who are saved. That's what we see as we work through this. So we work through um, Romans 1. Um, he, called, he, he says his audience are the called of Jesus Christ. He says they were called to be saints. Here in Romans 8, we see that it's part of this golden chain of salvation, as some call it. Romans 9, we looked at how God's purpose of election will stand because of him who calls. And Paul says that he has called those people who were not his people to be called the sons of God. Um, Speaking of Gentiles, it's really cool. We get to be participant in the gospel promises. So then 1 Corinthians, Paul uses it a bunch through there. So let's go over first to 1 Corinthians 1, and we'll look at some of these. And then 1 Corinthians 7 has some fun ones, I think. But any thoughts, comments, questions, as one professor says, nasty remarks? This far, that's kind of our review. Does the topic make sense, what we're trying to discuss? Okay. All right, so who wants to read for us 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3? Walter? Mm-hmm. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sophomore. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, if you didn't pick up on it, what uh, what's the key word in those three verses? Called. Paul's like, the he's setting the theme of this book. He's He is called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So Paul's call to be an apostle was at the same time as his call to be a saint. If you remember, go back and look at Acts chapter 9. Paul, he meets the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and is blinded. And he receives the gospel, but then Christ calls him to also be an apostle. But then he says, unto the church of God. And the word church in Greek is ekklesia, um, that bottom one there, ekklesia. And it's a compound Greek word, meaning two Greek words shoved together. Ek means out of, and then klesia, that's call. So the church is those who are called out. I think it's a beautiful picture. And we'll talk more about it in ecclesiology, which is our next study after soteriology, But it's just beautiful how Paul weaves this all together. He says he's called to be an apostle to the church who are the called ones of God, the called out ones. And then partway through verse 2, he says, speaking of his audience, called to be saints. Okay, so that's their calling. They're called to be saints. Saints are the holy ones of God, those who are set apart from sin for God. In other words, a Christian. But then he says, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus. It's just so cool. He just keeps using this word over and over and over. So to be a Christian means that we are called by God, but not only are we called by God, but we call upon God. 
on the name of Jesus. I don't know. I just think it's really cool. I hope you do too. It's just beautiful. Paul, it's really, it's kind of poetic. But then he uses it a couple more times down in verses 8 and 9. Hey, Gabe, I gave out all my notes, my friend. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, verse, verse uh, let's pick it up in verse 6. Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that word blameless is another word related to our root of call. Blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he says, now I beseech you, which is another Greek word related to it. It's parakaleo. It's to beseech or to exhort or to call alongside. So he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. So Paul's exhortation in the book of 1 Corinthians is all based on God's call. He says, because God called me, now I'm coming to you, you who are called by God, and also then call upon the name of Christ, because you're called to be saints, you're called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, so now I'm exhorting and calling you to speak the same thing, in other words, to be unified. And it's all based on the call of God. It's an essential doctrine then. But then let's go down to 1 Corinthians 7, because this one is also pretty cool, and it helps us understand what Paul means when he uses this word call. Because at least this far, at least the way I feel as I read this, I'm like, I think I'm getting the sense a little bit of what it means to be called, but it'd be helpful if Paul clarified it. And I think he does here in 1 Corinthians 7. So 1 Corinthians 7, our context is... um, Morning, Miss Kendra. Our context is... Paul is talking about the Corinthians. They had this idea that if once they became a Christian, if they were married to an unsaved individual, they had this idea that, well, maybe I need to divorce that unbeliever so that then I could be married to a Christian because now I'm a Christian. But Paul, he wants to address that. He says, no, if you, um, if you come to Christ, but you're still married to an unbeliever, He says, you should remain with them if they're willing to remain. So Paul talks through that and he says, now, if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, in other words, they're going to desert you, abandon you, divorce you, let them go. You're free now. He makes that point as you work through this. Um, So it's one of the key passages as we consider what the Bible has to say about divorce. But then Paul bases that exhortation of the believing spouse remaining with the unbelieving spouse, if they're willing, he bases that on the call of God. So let's see what I mean here. Um, we're reading verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, let's read verses 14 through 24. Anybody up for 11 verses? It's okay. 1 Corinthians 7, 14 to 24. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, 
but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each one should retain the place in life that the Lord assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the rule I laid down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freed man. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each man as responsible to God should remain in the situation God calls him to. Boy, that's some pretty helpful advice. Did you follow Paul's train of thought, though? He, Paul's just really good at losing me. What does Paul have to say in these verses about what we're trying to consider, the call? How does he define the call? I think points out that you're called where you are, and that's a big part of it. So remain where you are because the call there for a reason. Mm-hmm. So God gives us an assignment in life. That's our calling. Remain where you are. We have some people debate, okay, is there a calling like, say you're a plumber, are you called to be a plumber, or is that just happenstance? Is there something else you could do, or do you have to be a plumber your whole life? Well, you can think about that, but we actually have a parallel right here, 1 Corinthians 7.21. A servant is someone very similar to an employee in our day. There's differences, but he says in verse 21, are you called being a servant? Care not for it. But if you may be made free, use it rather. Um, For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also he who is called being free is Christ's servant. So the point he makes is, if you're a servant when you're called, when would we identify as that call? When you're serving. Okay. Yeah, in that sense. Sorry, I couldn't... Exactly. It's when you get saved. That's, that's what Paul's trying to argue through here. But, yeah, when you're also, when you became a servant. The calling of a plumber. But that's the point Paul's making is, if you're a servant, or maybe in our day, if you were a plumber when you got called to salvation, stay as a plumber. Stay as a servant. But if you have the opportunity to become free as a servant, take it. Um, but he says, realize that if you're a slave on earth, you're still free in Christ. And if you're free on earth, you're still a slave to Christ. Does that argumentation of Paul make sense? So the point Paul's making is, um, God has called us to peace, is where he starts back in verse 15. God's call is for us to be living at peace with one another. That's why if the unbelieving spouse wants to leave, you don't have an argument and try to convince them they have to stay. God's called us to peace. Let him go. But then he works through that, and he talks about um, he talks about if you were called in circumcision versus uncircumcision. This was a big concept for him: Jews versus Gentiles. 
But Paul is making the point. A Jew doesn't have to become a Gentile in order to be saved, and a Gentile doesn't have to become a Jew in order to be saved. Does that make sense? So I think this passage really helps us understand the way Paul views the call. It has to do with the moment of our salvation. You were called when you were saved. Thoughts there? Yeah, amen. If we're not following our calling, but I have noticed the more I follow the calling that God has put on my life, it is more peaceful. Yeah, amen. It's good. I think it's really cool how Paul connects all of this using the word call. He takes us from how God called us to how because he called us as saints to be saved, now we also have a calling, an assignment in life but we do it as we call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we're called the called. Miss Sari? I was thinking, too, you know, telling you to stay where you were when you were called to Jesus. Our calling is to be light in the mm-hmm. world. And so when you're in that situation, whether you're a plumber, if you're a plumber when you get saved, your calling is to be light. right amen the best person to talk to the unbelieving spouse is the believing spouse the best person to talk to the kiddos is their own mother amen right amen and to candace's point some might disagree maybe the the believing spouse doesn't talk to the unbelieving spouse but first peter three talks about it of the lifestyle (laughs) sorry (laughs) Um, but your lifestyle god's using it yes i agree 
Yeah. Sometimes it's not direct words that might change. Yeah. So it's more about serving the Lord, they can see Amen. our actions and not yeah. just our emotions. Yeah. Amen. We pray for you guys. Amen. It's good. I just think it's really cool how Paul takes such a deep truth like foreknowledge, predestination, and calling, something that's far beyond our ability to comprehend, and then he just makes it so practical. He's like, because God's called you, now you have a calling, so live according to that calling. And that's the point he makes over in Ephesians. Maybe we should go over there. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, just look at verse 1. This is Paul's transition from all of his gospel teaching, chapters 1, 2, and 3, to now he's applying it, so making it practical for us. Verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. That's the, so I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, that's parakaleo, I call you, I'm urging you, that you walk worthy of the vocation that's, the, uh, that's the, the noun form of the calling wherewith you are called. He says, with all lowliness, meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Then he says, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. So, again, Paul takes our gospel calling, and he says, guys, this is not just a lofty theological thought, but it's a practical principle for the way that we live. He says, I'm urging you, walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. God's called you to be a saint. Now the goal is to live up to that calling. Perfection? Not in this life, but that's the goal. And he says, then he begins to make the principle, he applies the principle to unity once again, to peace, verse 3. And he says, well, how do we have this unity of spirit? Well, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. How do Christians in a church 
made up of people who are just as different as possibly can be. We see things differently. We have different political persuasions. We have different lives, etc. How do we get along in a church? Well, it's because we're all Christians. We have one hope of our calling. Even if we have nothing else in common, God's given us all the same calling and the same hope with it. So the practical principle of walking worthy, God's given us this gospel call, so then we ought to live up to it, which leads us to unity with one another. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, Paul does use this word call twice over in 1 Thessalonians as well, but we're going to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, he gives the same exhortation to walk worthy of God who has called us. But then 2 Thessalonians 2, 14. Let's pick it up, though, verse 13. He says, but... We are bound to give thanks always to God for you. That's a key theme in the Thessalonian letters, is Paul's giving thanks for them and what God's doing through them. He says, We're bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you. That's, uh, that goes with our concept of election. He says, From the beginning God's chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul says, God chose you. Well, what did he choose you for? Salvation and sanctification by belief of the truth. So that's what God chose us for salvation, sanctification, and faith. But then he says, Whereunto to salvation, sanctification, and faith, whereunto God has called you by our gospel. So he's called us to salvation, sanctification, and faith. He's done it by the preaching of the gospel truth. That's how God calls people. And then he says, the purpose of that calling is to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's purpose in calling us is so that we can behold the glory of Christ And so that we can be changed into the same image. So that we also get to partake in the glory of God. That's sanctification going into glorification. I just, man, I hope you're seeing this. This is just really cool. How Paul, he says, it's an incredible principle that God's called us, but it's practical. God changes us by that gospel call he's given us. Thoughts this far? Because then we'll kind of transition to the way we approach it. Take it from another perspective. I'm just kind of thinking about what Sarah said earlier. Like, I don't know, I just think we have more impact when we're spread out, right? If everyone was mm-hmm. taller in the church, it would be advanced and forefront. It would all be talking about that. Yep. Like, and that's, that's just kind of how it always kind of shows up in my, in my mind. Yeah. So, yeah, God calls you where you are because you have you are Jesus to those people. Like Amen. And that's just kind of a, it's a cool thing of, like, 
just realizing, because a lot of people, I think they get hung up on like, oh, like, probably, like, I'm a Christian now, like, I need to go, like, almost turn inwardly towards yep. um, the ministry, right? But realizing that your life is ministry. Like, Amen. 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 And you guys get to reach people that I've never even met. For sure. Yeah. And that's like the long term relationships, right? Like, I work with people for like 10 years. Yeah. So I can Yeah. And that goes to the point of like, if we move around all the time, it's really hard because relationship evangelism is what's effective. Yeah. Amen. it's good I think it's really cool because that theme is one of the big things Paul's talking about in both Thessalonian letters specifically 1st Thessalonians because he, he starts it out and he says we give thanks to God always for you I'm in reading 1st Thessalonians 1 verse 2 Making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. Um, This is the Apostle Paul, like one of the most spiritual men to ever live. And he's saying, guys, I'm thanking God for your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience of hope. These measly Thessalonian believers. And it's like, no, their impact... Paul could have never had. That's why he went and preached the gospel there and planted a church there because he couldn't impact Thessalonica the way the Thessalonians who lived in Thessalonica could. It's just so cool. Amen. Okay, then let's let's do this. Let's kind of well, we should go and we should go and look at one revelation passage. Let's go to Revelation 19 verse 9. Actually, we can do both revelation passages. Start in 17, verse 14. 
And Lord willing, if uh, Christ doesn't come back first, we will get to eschatology after we talk about ecclesiology, the church. Oh, so eschatology is coming, the study of the end times. So hopefully we'll get more discussion there soon, um, maybe by summer. But Revelation 17, verse 14, um, the t- let me make sure here how we're going. Um, so remember, if you think through your eschatology, we're in the tribulation. There's the Antichrist, who's called the Beast. He's a king, the king over all the kings on earth. But then he has ten kings with him. Um, and verse 13, pick it up, verse 12. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and will give their power and strength unto the beast. These, the ten kings, along with the beast, they will make war with the lamb. Now, who's the lamb in Revelation? Yeah, God specifically, Jesus Christ. They'll make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords, king of kings, So the point is, these kings of earth are making battle against Jesus Christ, the king of kings, over everyone, and the lamb destroys them. He overcomes them. But then, John says, and those that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. In other words, these are saints. They come from heaven with Christ and overcome these kings of earth. And John says they're called. That's really cool. So our gospel call now in this life and how we live out that calling means that in the future we are in battle with Christ and then we reign with him. So now drop down to Revelation 19. And this is right before Christ comes back and destroys these armies of earth. But verse 9, Then he said unto me, Write, Blessed are those, Blessed are those who are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he says unto me, These are the true sayings of God. So I followed his feet to worship him. And the angel says, Hey, I'm just a fellow servant. Worship God. But this is cool. So we have this future day when Christ vanquishes all his foes, and there's a marriage supper of the Lamb. And who is the Lamb is Christ, so who is the Lamb getting married to? Yeah, his people, the church. Kendra? Okay, this might be silly, maybe I missed something somewhere, but these people who are going to be kings, are those the people that are just left on earth, or is that like a demonic thing that they come up and then they are kings? There's definitely some demonic influence, but these ten kings are earthly human kings. Because I guess that confuses me, because right now we're like, well, I guess maybe, because I feel like there's, well, maybe, never mind. Because we do have like kings and queens and princesses and princes and stuff, but I guess in alcohol I'm thinking, where do we need a king to have a place? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But at the time, they didn't have a president. 
Yeah. Okay, because that's what I was thinking. I'm like, Kings, are we going to go back to like Kings and Kings? Could be. I know, because yeah. that's what I'm wondering. Is like, no, at this point, because it's probably going to be a ways. So this hasn't even happened, so we still Correct. Have yeah, we've got a, at least a few years because the tribulation, seven years, and this is close to the end of it. So almost seven years before this could even happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. But the picture is Antichrist, the beast, is reigning as king over planet Earth. And in his empire, there are ten nations, ten sub-empires led by ten leaders who pay homage to the Antichrist. Okay. Yeah. Which no, it really doesn't. No doubt. Yeah. So, but what we pick up here is, he says, right, blessed are those who are called. Some translations say invited. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's kind of cool. Because we're called by God, we've received that call, and now we are living out our calling, and we're calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus. One day in eternity, we are invited to this marriage supper of the Lamb because we were called. We are now invited. It's beautiful. Okay, I have a question. Go for it. (laughs) Well, are you saying I wasn't called then? Like, this is where I, I just have a hard time reasoning that out in my mm-hmm. mind. Like, because in my mind, I feel like everyone has the chance, mm-hmm. but I don't necessarily think we're all called because God knows all of our hearts and knows our, whether it's foreknowledge, yeah. knows what we are going to ultimately choose. Does, is that kind of what it is? Like, we're not all called because God knows us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, we'll just kind of jump ahead in the way we hit Sorry. this. Oh, you're great. Um, let me jump down to, we're jumping to the end, the meaning of the salvific calling. Okay. So, kind of the picture we get is there are two calls. One is a general call in the sense of a gospel invitation. That's how Paul, that's how Christ used it. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then Paul mentions it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, you were called to salvation, sanctification through the Spirit by our gospel. So the preaching of the gospel is a general call, an invitation for one to believe. But then only those who receive that call are now called. Does that make sense? So some theologians distinguish it this way. A general call is just an invitation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sins will be forgiven. You'll be given eternal life. But then the effective call is not so much that God only gives this call to certain individuals, but the call, the gospel call, is only effective for ones who receive it. When they believe on Christ, now they've been saved, and so they are the called. But if they reject it, it has no efficiency for them. Does that make sense? So now, okay. Okay. This is like real quick, and you can go get it. 
When, so now going back to the marriage, your spouse is sanctified under the believer. Now are they, will they one day, before they die, God knows that they will be saved because you have sanctified them as a believer? Only God knows. You don't know? I don't think so. <laughs> it's, like, you don't know. Yeah, it's not a guarantee. I don't Not a guarantee. I don't think you can save yourself <clears throat> by staying married to them. But I, from experience, I feel like the more that I let it just be, I think that it kind of, like sanctifying in my mind is like living in that peaceful state. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, because when I was thinking sanctify, I was thinking like one day they will become a believer, like God will protect them and bring them to the Lord. I think if anything, like I I don't, I would hope that, but I don't think that's the case. Like use us to one day sanctify, like they will become the Lord. I don't think it's a guarantee. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Well, because it's, if, if you go back and look in 1 Corinthians 7, he said, the unbelieving spouse sanctifies, sorry, the believing spouse sanctifies the unbelieving spouse. Then his illustration of it is the children. Yeah, Not all kids of believing parents come to Christ, but often they do. Mm-hmm. A lot more frequently than children of unbelieving parents. Yeah. Well, and I also see that, like, because there's, like, statistics where if the father doesn't believe and he doesn't come to church or show the kids, then, like, the kids are, like, 98% not going to believe. or some ridiculous statistic like that. Um, But I do believe that if you're sanctifying your marriage by, like, keeping the peace, and not just, like, getting walked on, but, like, godly, in a godly way, keeping the peace and sanctifying your marriage, the kids are going to then grow up in a more, like, stable environment to be more stable. Like, they'll reflect that. Christ yeah, and I think that they will see, yeah, I, yeah, I think that that's more powerful than trying to fight the non-believer to Christ. Mm-hmm. So, I like that. Yeah. It's good. Sarah? So it's not a guarantee. The, the word sanctification means to be set apart. It doesn't actually mm-hmm. mean saved. Mm-hmm. So if you, as a godly wife that's trying to be Jesus, your house is going to look different than a wife that's going to be beating up the Yeah, 
So with this, we'll close. The beauty of this, it leads us to adoration because God is the initiator of our relationship with him. He called us. We didn't choose God. God chose us. But also, we got the opportunity then to choose God by responding to that call. But God had a goal in it. So obviously, we saw Second Thessalonians, salvation was the goal. But then he wants us to be able to have fellowship with Christ. He wants us to have peaceful relationships. He's called us to freedom. He's called us to his own kingdom and glory. He's called us to holiness. That's a good one to look up. First Peter 1, that's the be holy as I am holy. Um, but it's because he called us, then he calls us to this holiness. Um, salvation by sanctification and faith. Verse six, or number 6, out in 2 Thessalonians 2. He's called us to eternal life, 1 Timothy 6, and he's called us to this eternal inheritance. In other words, the hope of our calling. We look forward to the inheritance we share with Christ. And then 1 Peter 2. This is one, go look it up. It's not one that I would have wanted necessarily on my list. But God has called us to suffering. That's part of our calling. Amen. Amen. That's right. And I think that's why Paul talks about the hope of our calling. Is yes, suffering, but it gives us hope. Amen. Well, let's close in prayer.